Uh, good morning, church family. Family, can we do something uh, just to honor uh, our musicians, honor Nathan, uh, honor Rebecca. Rebecca, we are so going to miss you. And for those who don't know, Rebecca's getting married uh, in just uh, a few weeks. And so just to honor our teams uh, who work so hard to make our Sunday morning uh, an excellent experience for us so that we can enjoy what it means to be a part of the church from our living rooms in this season. Can we just put our hands together and thank them or put something down in the chat form or whatever platform you're watching just to let them know how much you love them uh, and appreciate them. We are so blessed. Uh, if you are new, my name is Chris, one of the leaders here at West Village. We are uh, super excited to have you. I uh, want to let you know that you can be connected to our church family beyond just watching. Just simply text your name to the number on the screen below and we will follow up and get you connected. If you have a Bible, grab it and open it up. Go to the book of Esther chapter 8. We are working through the book of Esther verse by verse. And one of the things that I love about our church is that we love the Bible. As a church, you have been so gracious to uh, myself and to the other leaders who get the privilege of teaching and preaching to allow us just to teach through books of the Bible, to teach the Bible. Uh, I love the Bible. I hope you love the Bible. I hope as we go through books of the Bible, uh, you are growing in your love for, for the Bible. And one of the things I love about the Bible is not just the Bible itself, although it is a wonderful book. Uh, it is full of mystery and awe and wonder uh, and great story and tragedy and all sorts of good goodness. There's all sorts of goodness in the Bible. There's something unique about the Bible in that what the Bible does is it points us to Jesus. And the reason that I love the Bible and the reason that we love to teach the Bible here at West Village is because the Bible does just that. It points us to Jesus. And so as we've been going through the book of Esther, one of the things that you have probably wondered about and continued, uh, have been continuing to hear is that this book, even the book of Esther, which comes way before Jesus in the story of the Bible, is actually all about Jesus. And what we're going to do today as we go to Esther chapter 8 is we're going to, in a very clear and real and, and particular way, see how the Bible in general, but the book of Esther, uh, and then even Esther chapter 8 in particular, is all about Jesus. Uh, and so just to set this up, I kind of want to take one giant step back and help us understand exactly what the Bible is. So if you, you know, you have your Bible, you hold it out and you look at it and you go to the table of contents, what you'll see is that the Bible is actually made up of 66 different books. But the Bible, although it is made up of 66 different books, although there is the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is ultimately telling us one giant story. And that story starts in Genesis. It ends in the book of Revelation. And the story's all about God's redemption. It's all about his saving work. And at the very center of the story of uh, God's redemptive work, his saving work, his story is Jesus. And at the very center of the life and the ministry of Jesus is the cross of Jesus, the means by which God ultimately rescues and redeems all of humanity. It's the cross and the resurrection and the, and the return of Jesus where he will promises he will come again to make all things new. And so if we understand the Bible as one giant story, and if at the very center of the Bible we have uh, the saving work of Jesus, then what ends up happening is if we are to properly understand and read the Bible, we now look at the Bible with completely new glasses or a completely new lens. Now we look at the Bible and we read the Bible through the lens of the gospel or through the lens of the saving work of Jesus. Uh, so again, if you just imagine that this is a, a story, this is a, like the plane of a story. When we look back at the Old Testament, we look back at it through the lens of the cross. The cross of Jesus and the story of Jesus, the, the gospel of Jesus now casts a shadow back over the entire Old Testament. Everything leading up to Jesus is now cast properly in the shadow of the cross. And so what we end up seeing is that as we start in Genesis long before Jesus comes on the scene and even get to the book of Esther long before Jesus comes on the scene, we have all of these clues or these breadcrumbs, if you will, that are leading us down the path towards Jesus. And again, as we come to Esther chapter 8 this morning, what we are going to see is that this is all about Jesus. The book of Esther is all about Jesus. Esther chapter 8 is all about Jesus. And as I sat in my office this week, 
uh, preparing to preach Esther chapter 8, I, I just kept giggling in the office. I'm like, this is amazing. This is so wonderful. This is so fun. And so I'm super amped up. I'm super pumped to preach Esther chapter 8 this morning. So if you have a Bible, go to Esther chapter 8. Let's pick up in verse 1. Here we go. Esther chapter 8 verse 1 says this, the same day that King Xerxes gave Queen Esther, the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had uh, told how he was related to her. So let me just stop there for a second and kind of set up the scene for, for a moment to help us understand what's happening in the story up to this point. So what we have had happen is there was an evil man, a bad man named Haman, and Haman, working with King Xerxes, put out an edict to have all of God's people destroyed, all of the people of God who were in the uh, the Persian Empire were to be killed. A genocidal edict was was looming over, hanging over the people of God. And through a series of providential or serendipitous events, God in his grace and mercy uses two people, Esther and Mordecai, to bring about the the ultimate rescue and redemption of his people. Now, we haven't got to the ultimate rescue and redemption of God's people in this story yet, but what we've started to see where we are in Esther, coming out of Esther chapter 7 and into Esther chapter 8, is that Haman's story has kind of gone from, you know, this sort of middle management man in the government to the second chair in the empire. He was at the top, and, and what we saw was that Mordecai was way down at the bottom. But now what started to happen, and this kind of came to a bit of a culmination in Esther chapter 7, but it's going to reach even higher and even higher zenith moment here in in Esther chapter 8 is that now Haman has gone all the way down to the bottom. In fact, his his life is now ended. In Esther chapter 7, he's killed by King Xerxes. But now what we're going to start to see is that Mordecai is elevated. And and there's this great literary device that the author of the book of Esther uses to to make the points that the author is trying to make. It's, It's kind of these two literary devices that operate like two pedals on a bike. He uses a repetition and irony to point out something significant that's happening in the story. So what we're going to start to see now in Esther chapter 8 is that everything that was promised to Haman is now going to be given to Mordecai. And what you're going to see with Esther chapter 8 is that it's a it's almost an exact mirror of Esther chapter 3. So the rise that Haman experiences... And then the fall that he experiences is going to be mirrored identically by Mordecai. So what we see here in verse 1 is that everything that belonged to Haman is given by Xerxes to Esther, who we'll just see in the next verse, is going to actually give it over to Mordecai. But look at what it says next in verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had uh, reclaimed from Haman. So Haman lost the ring. And presented it to who? To Mordecai. Okay, so you can see what's happening here. Uh, And Esther appointed him, being Mordecai, over Haman's estate. Uh, So we get this picture here where everything that belonged to Haman has been taken from him, and everything that uh, has been taken from Haman is now being given to Mordecai. Mordecai has received the rights to the estate of Haman. Mordecai has even received the king's signet ring which is the king's authority. That's been, that's been given, handed over to Mordecai. And now when you look at the life of Mordecai, you ask the question, is he deserving of what he's received from the king? And the answer is no, no, he's not. Uh, if you go back to the beginning of the book of Esther, Mordecai hasn't been a good leader. He hasn't made good decisions. He, he if you recall back from Esther chapter 2, he functionally pimps out his adopted niece to uh, King Xerxes in his reality show, uh, The Bachelor Persia Edition. Uh, he then decides that he, out of an act of pride, not religious obedience, but pride, refuses to bow down to Haman. And as a result of his unwillingness to bow down to Haman, he puts the entire uh, people of God under threat because of his unwillingness, the pride that was, uh, that was within him that did not allow him to bow down to Haman. And so when we come to a text like this, one of the questions that we have to ask all the time, if we're going to properly understand it, remember, we read all of scripture in light of the gospel, in light of the saving work of Jesus, is how does Jesus inform this text? How, how do we see Jesus in this text? Now, there's lots of places that we see Jesus right here in Esther chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. But, but the way that I want to point out uh, for us today is that we see that Jesus is actually the better Xerxes. If you look at what Xerxes has done here with Mordecai, Xerxes has granted Mordecai life. 
Mordecai deserved death, but Xerxes grants him life. Uh, Mordecai went from the bottom of the barrel to functionally being the vice president in the empire. Uh, Mordecai was given much more than he ever deserved, ever could have hoped, or ever could have imagined. And he didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. It was just given to him by Xerxes. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. It's a beautiful picture of what the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, whereby we are deserving of death. Our sin has caused us to be distant from God, far away from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has given us his grace, has laid down his life for us in the person and work of Jesus. And as a result of that, we move from death to life. We move from orphan to adopted. We move from uh, enemies of God to friends with God. And this is exactly exactly what we see in the life of Mordecai. But there's also this beautiful picture here. And we see this in, in uh, chapter eight, verse two, look at what it says. It says that the king took off his signet ring. Uh, if you, if you uh, understand what's happening here, the signet ring was, was the, a ring that ba- it bore the insignia of King Xerxes. And by having Xerxes ring, you were actually able to speak with the authority of the king. What a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus calls us into his family, calls us into his kingdom, and then sends us out on his mission. Just as uh, Mordecai didn't deserve the grace of Xerxes, so too we don't deserve the grace of Jesus. But when Jesus sends us out, he doesn't give us just his ring that bears his insignia. He actually gives us the spirit of God. Uh, the book of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul talks about the, the Spirit of God being the very power that raised Christ from the dead. That in the same way that when Mordecai spoke, he could speak with the authority of King Xerxes. When we speak on behalf of Jesus, we speak with his authority because we are now filled with his Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus sends out his followers to go and make disciples who make disciples, to go be on mission, as we would say here at West Village, to go make Jesus known in the city, to go saturate the city with the gospel that every day, every man, woman, and child would have an encounter with Jesus and his church through word and deed. That's the mission of the church. That's what we've been saved into. That's what we've been saved for. When Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 28, notice what he says. The verses uh, won't be on the screen, but you should be familiar with these verses. I think in order to be a part of West Village, you have to actually have them uh, tattooed on your bicep. It's a requirement for membership. Uh, but Jesus says, all authority in, hev- in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, so Jesus starts with his commission, sending out the church to go make disciples by saying, wait a minute, before you go to make disciples, just recognize that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go. In other words, you can go, not because you're great, not because you're worthy, not because you're a good leader. You're just like Mordecai, but you can go because you go with my authority. You, you have my signet ring. You have my spirit within you. And then he says at the end of these verses in in verse 20, he says, and surely I will always be with you to the very end of the age, implicating that we will one day be filled with the Spirit, which we indeed are when we come to faith in Jesus. And just as Mordecai receives the undeserving merit and grace of King Xerxes, and just as Mordecai receives uh, Xerxes' signet ring, so too do we receive the unmerited, unearned favor of King Jesus so too do we receive not a signet ring, but his spirit. And so too are we sent to speak on his behalf with his authority because of his grace and mercy. It's good news for us. Some of us, when we hear about going to be on mission, when we think about going to be on mission, we talk about sharing the gospel, opening our homes, opening our lives, giving of our stuff, we get overwhelmed. I don't know what to say. I've never talked to anyone about Jesus. What if they say mean things about me? What if they... What if they don't like me? What if if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? Good news, church. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's not up to us. It's up to Jesus. We speak with his authority. We go with his authority. We are filled with his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead that will empower us, fill us, and use us because it is him who sends us. Are you inadequate? If you're like me, you're probably inadequate. (laughs) You're probably like trying real hard, but not super awesome at following Jesus. But the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful message that we see in Jesus's words, we even see it though here in Esther chapter eight, is that God's grace is sufficient. 
It's about Him. It's not about you. It's about His goodness and His grace, not about your ability to do anything. And so the first thing we see here is that Jesus is the better Xerxes. But carrying on, we now see that Jesus is not just the better Xerxes, he's also the better Esther. Uh, Look at what it says in verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. Uh, She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. So there's still this looming tension over the story. Yes, uh, Mordecai has been saved. Yes, Esther has made it so that Haman has been destroyed. But there's still the issue of this edict, this genocidal edict that has been issued by Haman and Xerxes that has gone out. And there's this, uh, there's this reality that, that existed in the Persian Empire where, uh, uh, it was referenced in, historically it's referenced as the law of the Persian and the Medes. And what that means is that anytime a king uh, issued a decree, an edict, or a law, it was irrevocable and irreversible. So this law, this, uh, this edict to have God's people killed still looms over the story. And what we see here is that Esther's pleading with King Xerxes begging King Xerxes to do something. And then look at what it says in verse 5. If it pleases the king, she being Esther said, uh, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, sorry. Bet you're glad you don't have my job. The Agagite devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? In other words, Esther's pleading, King, can you please do this? She's passionately and emotionally pleading with King Xerxes. And then look at, What happens next? Verse 9. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month of the Savan. They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps and to the governors and to the nobles of 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. That represents the entire empire, the Persian empire. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue was going to hear this. And also to the Jews in their own uh, script and language. And Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes. He sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast, horses especially, bread for the king. So what's happening here? Well, there's this reality whereby King Xerxes and Haman have issued an edict to have all of God's people killed. Esther is now pleading with Xerxes to have that edict revoked. King Xerxes says, I can't. I can't do it. It's politically not expedient for me to do it, but I'm also bound by the law to not be able to do it. So here is what Xerxes proposes to Esther and Mordecai. Instead of revoking a law which cannot be revoked, what if we issue a counter edict? What if you go ahead and write with my signet ring, with my authority, an edict to the entire Persian empire that would counteract the edict that Haman and myself issued previous? Now, don't miss, again, what's happening here. It's not accidental. The language that is used by the author in Esther chapter 8, he uses all the same language in Esther chapter 8 to describe what's taking place uh, in the life of Mordecai to save the people of God that he used in Esther chapter 3 in relationship to Haman, who's trying to destroy the people of God. So he's setting us up for something here. But there's this beautiful reality that we see that because of Esther's willingness to go to Xerxes, to plead with Xerxes, to beg King Xerxes on behalf of her people that he says, okay, fine, here's a solution. Here's a way. In other words, there's a pathway to salvation for the people of God. 
Uh, there's a means by which the people of God are going to be able to be saved. And we get this beautiful picture of Esther as one who mediates on behalf of the people of God to King Xerxes for the people of God's salvation. She was perfectly, uniquely positioned to be the one to mediate on their behalf. Uh, Esther was of Jewish ethnicity, and she was also of Persian royalty. Jewish ethnicity, which meant if anyone was going to be able to plead with King Xerxes, emotionally plead, beg for their salvation, it would be her. Why? Because she was one of them. Their death meant her death. She knew exactly what their plight was because it was her plight. If the queen at that time had been anyone other than someone who was of of Jewish ethnicity, they would not have been able to plead with King Xerxes in the way that Esther was able to plead. But not only was she of Jewish ethnicity, she was also of Persian royalty, which meant what? She was able to get to the king. She was able to get to the king, bow down at his feet, and have his ear. If she had just been a Jewish peasant who wasn't Persian royalty, to come into the presence of the king in the way that Esther did, she would have been killed. As it was, she could have been killed for coming into the presence of the king. And it's only because of the king's willingness to extend his golden scepter, representative of his grace and mercy towards Esther, his favor towards Esther, that she was even able to speak on behalf of the people. And just like we asked in the previous set of verses, we ask again of these verses, how how do we see Jesus? How do we see Jesus in this text? Well, friends, just as Esther mediates between the people of God and King Xerxes, so too does Jesus mediate between us and God the Father. Jesus is the better Esther. Jesus is the better mediator. Just as Esther was both of Jewish nationality and Persian royalty, thus making her the perfect mediator for us. So too is Jesus the perfect mediator for us. Why? Because he was fully God and fully man. This is what the Apostle Paul lays out for us in Philippians chapter 2, where he says that, that, that God, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. St. Augustine, when unpacking Philippians chapter 2 and describing what the Apostle Paul is getting at, he describes not a Jesus who lays down his deity. Jesus didn't cease to be God when he entered into human flesh, but he let go of his rights as God. He didn't consider them something, equality with God, something to be grasped or clung onto. Instead, he open-handedly received the nature of humanity. He enters into our world and he's fully God and he's fully man. And just as Esther was of Jewish ethnicity and able to plead on behalf of her people emotionally and passionately, so too Jesus enters into the world and he's fully human. He's our great high priest who can identify with us in our weaknesses. Think about this with me, friends, but the perfect life of Jesus, it's the life that you and I were supposed to live. And he lived it in the flesh. He lived it in our place. He lived it for us because you and I couldn't live the life that God called us to live, but Jesus does it for us. And his righteousness, his perfect life is imputed or or granted or given to us as an act of God's grace. And just as, as... Esther was also Persian royalty, so too was Jesus fully God. 100% God, 100% man. The theological nomenclature is the hypostatic union. Who else could go on our behalf to God the Father but one who is God? Who else is qualified to not just live a perfect life but to go to the cross? to die in our place for our sins. Who else can forgive sins but God? If it was just my death, if it was just your death, if it was just someone else's death, if it was just the death of a good person, it would not be enough to cure us of the disease of sin. It had to be God. It had to be God in the flesh who goes to the cross that has the power 
to forgive us of our sin, to cure us of the disease and the ails of sin. Jesus is our better Esther. He's the perfect mediator. There's beautiful realities for us in light of this truth. Uh, What this means for us right now in this moment is we don't have to strive. We don't have to try. We don't have to perform to earn the grace of God. It is a gift that has been given to us because of the saving work of Jesus, our mediator. Uh, But not only that, again, if you're anything like me, you're not awesome at following Jesus. And you have moments in your life where you, where you feel like, oh, I'm not doing this right. I don't, I don't feel close to God. I, I feel like I'm a failure. I feel like God's not happy with me. I feel like God's not pleased with me. And maybe on your worst day, your absolute worst day, you feel like in some way you have done something that's actually disqualified you from the grace of God. Friends, just as Esther sat at the feet of King Xerxes and pleaded with him for the salvation of God's people. So too, right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen? And he's pleading. He's pleading on your behalf. He's pleading on my behalf. He's talking. He has the ear of the Father. And he's saying, that one's mine. Father, that one's ours. They're one of us. They're a part of our family. I know that they've made mistakes. I know that they've done wrong. I know that they've failed. I know that they have not lived up. I know that they have not measured up. I know that they have not done this well. But they get my gift of salvation, my gift of grace, my perfect life, my righteousness given to them as a gift. Friends, the grace of God is not something you can earn. The grace of God is not something you can achieve. It's a gift. But then hear this. Because Jesus is a better Esther, because he's our mediator, it's also not something you can lose. You can't lose something you didn't earn and you didn't earn the grace and mercy of God. Jesus gives it to you. And right now it is secure in heaven between him and the Father. Amen? Amen. Jesus is our better Esther. Jesus is our better Xerxes. He's our better Esther. But he's also our better Mordecai. Picking up in verse 11, warning here, this is about to get serious and heavy, okay? Verse 11, not a good time to go to the bathroom. Here we go, verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. Notice this, to destroy and kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children and to plunder the property of their enemies. This is a hard verse. It's a hard verse. It goes on. We'll come back and unpack that in just a second. Verse 12, the day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command. And the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. So what's happening here? There's an, ish, uh, an edict issued by Haman that all of God's people are to be killed. It's an irrevocable, irreversible edict. Mordecai and Esther are then able to issue a counter edict. And this is the counter edict. If you have a Bible, verse 11, I want to read it again because I think it's really important for us to understand what's in here. It says this, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them. And this is the hard, hard, I mean, up to this, this has been hard, but this is the harder part. And their women and children, and to plunder their properties and possessions. This is a hard text. Uh, There are many who 
read a text like this, and there are other verses in the Bible that are comparable to this, and it causes them to reject Christianity. Say, I can never worship a God who would have something like this in his holy book. There's probably many of you who are newer to faith in Jesus. Maybe you're on a faith journey. You've just started watching us since we've gone online, and you're sort of in the investigative stage of Christianity, or maybe even a new follower of Jesus, and you hear a text like this, and you're like, I signed up for the grace of Jesus part. I signed up for the God loves everybody part. But the Esther chapter 8, verse 11 part, I'm not sure what to do with it. So what do we do with a text like this? I mean, in a text like this, really what we're seeing ultimately is the total depravity of humanity put on display. The brokenness of humanity. On one hand, we have the Persian Empire, who's been issued this edict by Xerxes and Haman, and they're preparing to kill all of God's people. They're preparing for the day, right? They're stocking up on the weapons. They're eyeing up God's people. Which house do we want to take? Which women do we want to rape? Which families do we want to kill? Which which homes do we want to plunder? And then this edict comes out, and now it says that the people of God are actually going to be able to defend themselves, but not just defend themselves, to actually kill, to kill the men, to kill the women, to kill the children, and to plunder the goods. It's just a, it's just a total exposing of the worst parts of what it means to be human. So, so what do we do when we come to a text like this? Well, we ultimately have four options. The, the first option is we just ignore it. We just pretend that there's not verses in the Bible like this. We, we cherry pick from parts of the Bible that we want to hear from. We, we preach sermons topically or on topics that we like. And when we come to verses like this, we just skim over it and we just move past it. This is why I said at the very beginning, we love the Bible at West Village. In fact, this is one of the reasons why we teach through books of the Bible, because we think it's important to teach through verses like this. And if I were to come up to verse uh, 10 and read verse 10 and then skip down to verse 12, some of y'all would call us to account and you should because we, we think if it's in here, it's important. So the first option is to ignore it. The second option is to change it. There's many who would come to a text like this and I would describe them more as liberal theologians and they're going to come to a text like this and they're going to do what I call theological gymnastics or justification gymnastics. And they're going to, they're going to craft lofty statements and, and have these ideas of, of God that are, they're going to inject them into the text and into their theological rubric to try and somehow fit this in. But it doesn't actually work and it doesn't actually make sense of what is in here and it's ultimately not helpful. Uh, the third option is that we apologize for it. We come to a text like this and we're like, yeah, we're really sorry. You know, the God of the Bible and the Old Testament, this is like junior high God, right? He was still working out his emotions. He had some anger issues. But don't worry, by the New Testament, he matures. Jesus comes on the scene. He kind of calms things down a little bit. Right, Jesus is like the calm younger brother and the God of the Old Testament. He's like the angry older brother. Again, I don't think any of these options are helpful. My, my preference and what we're going to do here is what I call option four, which is teach it. We're going to teach this verse. Like I already said, we love the Bible at West Village. We believe it's profitable. We believe it's useful. But we believe that God, if God said it, if he preserved it, if he recorded it, then in some way, shape, or form, it is to our benefit to wrestle with this and help us understand something about the nature and character of who God is. So, so here's the question that I want to ask of verse 11. It's actually the same question we've been asking of this entire chapter. It's the question we started with. It's really the question we ask every time we sit down to open the Bible and should ask every time we sit down to open the Bible to read it and understand it. If this entire book is about Jesus then what then does this section, specifically verse 11, specifically the killing of women and children, have to do with Jesus? As you can see, I'm not dodging this. I'm getting right to the core. It's a tough, but it's a really good question. So there's three things I want to say to answer that question and address this passage. What does this answer the question of this passage? What does it have to do with Jesus? Here's the first thing. This is what I'll call the practical explanation. 
Well, I'm going to make just a couple of practical observations about this text, but, but I want to be clear about something. Uh, these observations in any way are not intended to justify the brutality that we see in these verses. I'm merely submitting them to you as observations to help give you like a more full context of what's happening here. So you fast forward Esther chapter nine, we won't turn there, but if you fast forward Esther chapter nine, what you're going to see is this actually happens. The Persians come, they attack God's people, God's people defend themselves. And that's recorded in Esther chapter nine. But what you see in Esther chapter nine is the counter edict that was given by Mordecai is actually given to the people of God so that they can defend themselves. So there's a sense in which this is self-defense. And in their act of self-defense, when it's recorded in Esther chapter nine, we see no evidence, no recorded evidence, at least that any women or any children were killed, or that any goods were plundered. In other words, what I'm trying to say, although while the people of God were granted permission, they did not exercise the full measure of the law that they were invited to act on. They used restraint. And I say that not to justify what happened, but just to help give you some context. The second thing I want to say in response to the question, how do we see Jesus in verse 11? It's, it's a bit of a literary exp- explanation. And what I'm going to do here is start to drift into the main thrust of my response. So if you've been following along in this book thus far, you will have recognized that we've already said this today, but the author uses a variety of literary techniques to make, uh, make his point. And the ones that we're seeing here in chapter 8 are repetition and irony. One of the main points that the author is trying to make in Esther chapter 8 is with regards to the rise and subsequent fall of Haman, but then also the fall and the subsequent rise of Mordecai. And one of the ways that the author does this is through repetition. And so in this edict in verse 11, if you take this and you go back to Esther chapter 3, when we're at the height of Haman's rise, what you will see is that the exact same edict that Haman issued is the same one that Mordecai issues here. This is the author's way of showing us that God's providential hand is directly ordering everything that is happening. Uh, We've said this many times throughout Uh, this series on the book of Esther, but in the book of Esther, we see no reference to God. We see no reference to prayers that are prayed, sins that are repented of. We do not see God's uh, character in the book of Esther through his visible hand of miracle, but rather through his invisible hand of providence. And so the edict that Mordecai issues here in chapter 8 was verbatim the issue that the edict that uh, was issued by Haman. But why? Why? And that gets us to the heart of the answer, which is my third, the third part of my response to that question, which is a theological explanation. As I said at the very beginning, that the Bible is a story about what? It's a story about God's redemptive plan. And in Genesis chapter, chapters one through three, the very beginning of the story, we get the plot to the rest of God's story revealed to us. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates everything and he declares it to be good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, who's known as Satan, comes into the garden and he tempts Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we get this picture whereby God comes and he He issues his justice over the situation, over the sin of Adam and Eve and over uh, the sin of the serpent, the, the, the temptation, rather, of the sermon, uh, serpent. And he issues what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel declaration. And he says that it will be from the offspring of the woman, Eve, that the head of the serpent will be crushed. In other words, it will be through the offspring of Eve that evil will be destroyed. Satan will be destroyed. But not before the serpent bites the heel of the offspring of Eve. And then what we see from that point forward until we get to Jesus and his 
his final work on the cross where we see that, that evil, Satan, is destroyed and his heel is his bitten. That's his death on the cross. That's his blood shed for us. But what we have in between Genesis chapter 3 and Jesus' death on the cross is the outworking of God's promise to crush and destroy evil. And so when we come to Esther chapter 8, that is exactly what we are seeing. When we come to the book of Esther, we are seeing the ongoing outwork of God's desire to crush and destroy evil. And it's most pronounced in the book of Esther between the characters of Haman and Mordecai. So it's no coincidence then that the author mirrors with Mordecai's edict in Esther chapter 8, the exact same words that Haman uses in Esther chapter 3. It's not a coincidence. He's doing it on purpose. In fact, I won't spend too much time on this, but if you go back and trace the two characters, we are told by the author that Haman is the offspring of the Agagites. King Agag was the king of the Amalekites, who in the Old Testament are the functional meta-enemies of the people of God. And Mordecai is the offspring of Saul, son of Kish, who was given an edict by God to destroy, kill and destroy the Amalekites, but he did not do it. He failed. In fact, that's why this is actually occurring, because Saul failed to do what God had asked him to do. And so what we have here is a picture of evil being destroyed. The death of Haman is the end of the Amalekites. And just like in Genesis chapter 3, the head of the serpent is being crushed, but not before the heel of Eve's offspring has been bit. Friends, you see, in this verse, what we are bearing witness to is the justice of God. Remember the question that we're asking of this verse, how is this a picture of Jesus? Well, what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus is that yes, he goes to the cross. Yes, he resurrects from the grave. Yes, he promises he will come again. But when he comes again, he will come with a winnowing fork. That's what we are told. He will separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. The branches that bear fruit will be saved. The ones that do not will be broken off and thrown into the fire. The fate of the branches that bear no fruit, of the wheat, of the goats, it's the same as that of Haman. It's destruction. It's destruction. Some of you hear that, you read verse 11, you hear about a Jesus who will come again to judge the living and the dead, and your response is, I could never worship a God like that. He's primitive, and he's vindictive. I'd be lying if I said I, I don't empathize with you. I don't, I don't read verses like this and preach Sermons like this with joy and delight in my heart, but rather with heaviness. But I would respond to that accusation with a question. If it was your job to rid the world of all evil, what would you do? How would you do it? I mean, who, who would you get rid of? Right? I mean, there's some obvious ones, right? We would get rid of the white supremacists. We'd get rid of the Nazis. They're bad. Uh, we'd get rid of child molesters. We'd get rid of people who beat their spouses or beat their children or abuse the elderly. Those are the easy ones, right? Uh, but what about, what about people who voted for Donald Trump? What about people who voted for, for Justin Trudeau? What about people who drive slow in the fast lane? Uh, what about people who count out to the penny exact change at the grocery store when you have somewhere to be? 
I mean, I'm kind of joking here, but you see my point. It gets complicated. But you know who you would never, my guess is, who you would never suggest is you. Or me. Why? Because we fail to recognize that we we are deeply flawed and deeply broken. That the brokenness in the world, it just isn't out there somewhere, but rather it's right in here. Well, we have this un- unbelievable ability. It's a superpower, really. To believe that all the potential for evil and darkness in the world rests somewhere else, but not in my own heart. But the reality is, we are deeply flawed and deeply broken. The problem is us. And when you look at a story like Esther, when you look at the storyline of the Bible, what's the difference between those whom God saves and those whom God doesn't save? What's the difference between Mordecai and Haman? Is one good and one bad? No. No. We've said this many times throughout the book of Esther. The only hero of the book of Esther is Jesus. The only difference between Mordecai and Haman is that God, in his grace, Jesus, by his grace and mercy, chose Mordecai. God had every right in Genesis chapter 3 to look out at Adam and Eve and look out at the brokenness and look out at all that was happening and just just wring his hands of all of it and start all over again. He, had, he has every right when he looks at the book of Esther to just say, you know what, you guys are a hot mess. I'm done with you. He has every right when he looks out at our world right now, this moment, if he has a Twitter account and he scrolls his Twitter feed, it is a hot mess in our world. He has every right, every right to say I'm done. But he doesn't. He doesn't. The Apostle Paul talks about him being slow to anger and abounding in love, that it's his kindness that leads to repentance, that it's his, his patience that is holding back so that you and I would come to him. And what we actually see here is that it's his grace and mercy that he actually chooses to enter into the brokenness and work with the mess, not discard it. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says that Jesus doesn't just go to the cross, but that he actually becomes our sin. He actually enters into the mess and he becomes our sin. The offspring of Eve is bruised because all of our brokenness, all of the sin in our world, all of the sin in the book of Esther, all of your sin, all of my sin is placed on him. He enters in and experiences He experiences what you and I deserve. And then he invites us to come to him. Friends, Jesus is a better Mordecai. Mordecai issued an imperfect edict to save in a very imperfect way the people of God. But Jesus, on the cross, He issues the perfect edict when he cries out, It is finished! And he saves us perfectly. And he invites us to come to him. I need to close. Look at how chapter 8 ends. Verse 15 says this, When Mordecai left, the king's presence. He was wearing royal garments of blue and white and a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. 
And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. They were so elated at the salvation of God on their behalf. And then it says this, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So on one hand, we see the people of God rejoicing at the salvation of Jesus. There's some of you who are hearing this and you know that Jesus is the better Xerxes who fills you and sends you. You know that Jesus is the better Esther who mediates on your behalf. Right now, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. You know that Jesus is the better Mordecai who issues the edict that your sins are forgiven and the justice of God is taken care of. And you, you have a clean slate and the grace of God and his favor and mercy is upon you. You, like the people of God in Esther chapter 8, you rejoice. But there's others of you who don't know that. Just like those in the Persian Empire, they heard about the grace of God. They, they heard and, and they were, it says here that they were fearful, but they were in awe. They saw the lengths to which God would work on behalf of his people to save them. And they were in awe. For those of you who do not know Jesus, you have not received Jesus, you have not come to Jesus, you have not heard before the good news of Jesus, then my invitation to you today, the invitation of Jesus today is that you would come and you would receive him. You would receive his love, you would receive his mercy, you would receive his kindness and his grace. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. We thank you that you are kind, you are loving, you are gracious. We thank you that you have poured out your mercy upon us. That although we are not deserving, you are faithful. That although we have not loved you well, you have pursued us. That although we have not, we've not remained faithful, you continue and continue to come after us. And so for those of us who know you, Lord Jesus, I pray that right now our affections would be stirred. But for those who don't, for those who are hearing this and we're on a journey, maybe we're hearing this for the first time, Spirit of God, would you speak? Would we hear your invitation to come? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.